Good morning. Um, thank you all for coming. Struggling with our, our famous metro system. Uh, this is an important session about the migrant situation, refugee situation in Europe. I am Boyden Graham, a member of the of the Atlantic Council's uh, Board of Directors and a member of the new Euro Growth Initiative, uh, which uh, the Atlantic Council has started to try to help uh, reinvigorate growth between uh, the two continents across uh, the Atlantic. And um, it is headed by Stuart Eisenstadt. Is he here? Uh, just left. Uh, and former um, commissioner, president of the European Commission, Manuel Barroso, who was who was president uh, of the commission when I was in Europe as a, as U.S. ambassador to the EU. So it was a great pleasure for me to see these two old friends of mine head up this uh, very very important uh, initiative. A key to all of this, of course, is the current uh, crisis, if you want to call it that. Um, certainly the difficulty of dealing with these migrants, refugees. Um, one of the key facets of the European project is the free movement of people, goods, services, and capital. And when you impede the free movement of people, you have struck at the heart of what makes uh, Europe, Europe. And so it has to get solved. Today's papers are full of stories of the initiation of the new agreement between the EU and Turkey over the relocation of some of these refugees. Um, this is a very important project. Um, it's not without controversy. It is a key to the future um, of Europe's continued uh, survival. But I really would rather take this opportunity for this session to look at the opportunities inherent in this um, series of difficulties, not the troubles. There will be a panel discussion where there will be questions where you can go into some of the difficulties, but I would prefer to put the emphasis as I introduced our first principal speaker on the opportunities. Um, just heard a report from UPS um, representative who has been in Berlin, seeing, uh, looking at, talking to many of the people coming through, and seeing really highly talented individuals who are looking for a much better set of opportunities than they have in Syria and in that part of the world. So this is not a situation of people coming in, uh, at least all people coming in, uh, looking for a handout. This is people coming in looking for ways to make uh, Europe a better place for them and for uh, Europeans already there. Uh, we are, in this country, of course, struggling with our own immigration issues in this campaign season, but I don't think anybody on either side of the aisle denies the fact that we are uh, a country of immigrants and have benefited enormously from the vibrancy, the new ideas, the strength, um, and the creativity of our newest um, newest uh, uh, citizens from all over all over the world, and we we hope that 
that this can be a, a help amidst a lot of gloom, that there are many bright lights that may uh, emerge uh, from this. Europe is, is suffering from uh, depopulation in parts uh, of the Union. Uh, this could solve that problem quickly. We would have that problem in this country were, were it not for our own uh, continued flow of immigrants uh, into the U.S. So the U.S. and the EU have an enormous amount in common. Uh, the, um, the need to have the two continents connect better on economic growth, because without growth, you won't find the jobs for these people, and without finding jobs for the people, you won't be able to take advantage of them, and there will be a spiral, not down necessarily, but stagnation, which is the worst thing that can happen to uh, any society and any culture. So I'd like to look on the right side um, myself and hope that this conference this morning will look on the bright side. And I don't want to talk any longer and bore you any longer. I'm going to turn this whole thing over to uh, Antonio Spilenbergo, who is the IMF mission chief uh, to Turkey, who will outline the, the IMF's new report on the refugee surge in Europe. Very, very important report. I hope you all will pay close attention. Antonio, it's all yours. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here at the Council to talk about this very important topic. Thank you, Ambassador, for the introduction. And uh, this report was written at the IMF uh, following the request of our member countries as the crisis, as the crisis, as the refugee, uh, refugee surge started. Uh, last summer, our member countries in Europe were concerned about the economic effects of the refugees and asked uh, IMF to write a report on the economic effect, what we know, we don't know about the refugee crisis. One clarification, we are fully aware that the main challenges are political, humanitarian, and, but we think that it's very important to understand the economic aspects if anything to frame the debate on humanitarian and political aspects much better than sometimes in the press or in the popular speak you see. So uh, one scope, one goal of the report was also to debunk or to address some myths, some ideas that are popular out there, but they do not have strong support in the data. With this in mind, I will focus on two aspects. First, the basic data. Second, on four economic issues. Uh, the, I will talk about the facts. I skip the part of the institutional framework which has changed, and I think later in the debate we'll, we'll talk more. And I will focus on four economic aspects, labor market, fiscal effects, growth, and age-related spending, and the implication of refugees on the long-term uh, aging uh, in Europe. Let's start with the fact. Well, uh, we are talking about the refugee crisis or refugee surge in Europe, but uh, refugees are a worldwide phenomenon. There are over 14 million refugees in Europe. In, in the world, and 
this number has increased over time because of mostly because of the conflict in Middle East, in uh, Syria, but also in Afghanistan, in the region. In Europe, this, uh, there was a dramatic uh, increase in refugee in uh, um, in the um, in year 2015, uh, and for the year that is actually I realize that is not correct. Through December 2015, the inflow was over 1.2 million of first-time refugees. Here there are some confusion on the numbers. These are the official number reported from Eurostat. There is some confusion because some refugees register in several places, uh, and uh, so it's, uh, we prefer to take just the official number. What do we expect uh, about the refugee in the future? Well, there are about 8 million refugee displaced people within Syria, out of a population of 24 million before the war. So about one third of the population of Syria is displaced within Syria. These are potential refugees. These are people who have not left their country, they hope to come back, but, uh, but uh, they are already displaced within the country. Of this, in addition, there are four million that have already left Syria. 2.5 are in Turkey, and uh, another two million are uh, in the regions, including in Lebanon, Jordan. Um, these ongoing conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Eritrea uh, mean that um, suggest that uh, this could uh, the number of refugees could increase more this year when the good season starts and is, is easier to move. Moreover, we know from previous literature that network network effects are very important in the refugee migration and in migrant in general. Once you have a well-established community, it's easier to move. So we do expect some more migration in the future, both because of the number of displaced people has increased and because we have these refugees. Of course, there are policies that have changed a lot, so, and we'll, about this we'll talk a little bit later. Uh, just to have an idea of the number, Europe is not new to the refugee. You have three big waves of refugee in Europe. You have, uh, uh, at the beginning of the 90s, at the end of the Cold War, when you have a wave of refugees from former communist country. You have uh, a wave of refugee in the late 90s, following the war in the former Yugoslavia. And now you have a, a new wave. What is characteristic of new wave are two things. First, that is much bigger than the peak than the rest. 2015 is already twice as much as the previous peak, which was reached in 92. Second is the origin of this country, which is not within Europe. They are not, uh, uh, the, for instance, in some of the way at the end of the end of Cold War where ethnic German coming back uh, home, and this uh, new wave of refugee is very different from the ethnically and religiously from the previous waves. This is uh, it's important to keep in mind for, also for political consideration. Uh, second, uh, you see this picture illustrates the uh, evolution over the last few months of refugees. The blue line show the refugees in 2013 by month, the green line in 2014, and as you can see, starting in late spring 2015, there was a huge increase in the refugee, which peaked during the summer. It went back in December. 
it's difficult at this stage to say whether this is because of policies or because of the weather, because this uh, seasonal pattern is coming also, was, was coming in the past. So it's very crucial to see what happens in the next few months. We have preliminary data for January and February. I say preliminary because few countries didn't report yet, but they are still much, uh, somewhat higher than they were in 2015. But this is, I think the jury is still out to see whether the recent agreement between EU and Turkey will work on limiting the number of refugees. The key numbers will come out in the next few months. Apart from this search, what is very important is also the destination of this. The, the panel on the left shows that the main destination are Germany, the absolute number for Germany is, was staggering, and these are just the official, so it's much less of the number you see sometimes in the press, uh, because these are already certified with the Euro, Eurostat. Uh, and after there is Hungary, uh, Hungary has a big number, but uh, because they insist in registering everybody, but we know that afterwards they, it was just a trans country. And the third is uh, Sweden and Austria, which are very important. Um, what is, uh, so, de facto, the refugee surge affects mostly, as a destination, three countries. Germany, Austria, and Sweden. These are the three countries which are uh, mostly affected. France, Spain are very marginally uh, touched, and uh, some, you have some important transit country, including Greece and Italy. But most of the refugee uh, final destination is uh, uh, Germany and Austria and Sweden. Another thing, as I mentioned before, the provenance is very important. As you see, there was a big increase of refugees from Syria, the doubling, but what is a little bit puzzling, at least was puzzling to us at the beginning, was to discover that the refugees from other countries are increasing very rapidly, from Kosovo in particular, which is a little bit strange because there was not a, a civil war or something. So uh, this speaks to the fact that there was some uh, a kind of, uh, uh, once you start to open some doors, uh, you have some mm, additional migration from other countries which are not directly affected. And also from Ag Afghanistan. Basically, a route opened, uh, so people started to, to move uh, uh, using this, uh, this new path. Well, um, let's go, well, uh, now I go to the economics. Uh, I deal with uh, three basic questions. First, labor market. Fiscal uh, growth and aging. Uh, labor market, uh, two aspects. How do immigrants uh, or refugees uh, integrate? Uh, this, uh, uh, we, uh, we, the, uh, the recent, uh, this wave is too recent to say something. We have to look back at what happened at previous immigrants. To do, do, to do this, we have two ways. We have our own uh, statistics, but we also rely on meta-studies. We look uh, at the previous studies on refugees, and we ask the question, what is the gap in wages average web in wage of refugee. So we have a large number of studies, I think more than 20s, 30s, and uh, this picture shows that, for instance, in, uh, in 19 studies, refugees or migrants, sorry, have a 30% wage gap. So 
controlling for their characteristic, education, uh, gender, uh, age, the average migrant has 30% less than a native. This is uh, across studies for the US and Europe, so it doesn't distinguish. Few studies found that on average there is no difference, but on average you see that most studies found that there is a gap between 20 and 40%. So there is a consensus in the labor literature that, uh, that migrants on average earn 30% less than natives. I stress again, given the same characteristic. So integration of immigrants for a serious of reason is difficult. Uh, could be because of the language, because of uh, recognition of education, titles, and so on, but is difficult. Uh, this is something that uh, emerges from several countries, several studies, several methodologies. Our own statistics show exactly the same uh, pattern. Of course, so this is at impact. So the first year, they earn 30% less. As time follows, there is, uh, there is much less. But even the second generation earns somewhat less than uh, natives. So this also should be kept in mind. These are, this gap goes down, but doesn't disappear easily. Unless, well, I'll talk later about policy. So the second uh, question on the labor market is, what is the impact of migrants on natives. Uh, in other words, do migrants steal jobs from natives? This is a question that politicians are very, impo it's very important for politicians and for uh, analysts. Well, the answer is quite, uh, is simple. There is very little evidence that migrants or refugees steal labor from natives. And uh, there are several studies. There are some effects, but they are very short-lived and very small, and for very peculiar group. Labor economists have studied extensively big episodes of migration. For instance, the Marilito boat in the 80s, when um, uh, more, I think, 100,000 um, Cubans moved to Miami labor market overnight. There was very little effect. You have a similar study on uh, in Portugal, when Portugal lost the colonies in 75, a lot of people repatriated, over one million repatriated to Portugal, and you don't see much of an effect. You have a similar effect also in Israel in 93-94, when a lot of Russian Jews moved back to Israel, and there was not much an effect. So both case studies uh, and uh, other surveys show that there is a not a big effect on of the refugee on migrants on local labor market for natives. There are some, but not so much. So the literature has moved a little bit. Why this is the case? Why we don't see much of an effect? Uh, well, this could be uh, is sometimes uh, I think the one explanation is that the migrants are, have skills which are complementary. With, um, with the natives, and so they don't compete for the same job, but help pr producing a, a, the same uh, enhancing economic uh, activity. Or there is a change in product mix. Um, a very good example is the textile industry in Southern California. Didn't exist before, uh, many uh, hundred years ago. When the Mexicans started to come, there was cheap labor and you could have a textile industry in California. 
Another example is uh, the high-tech industry in, um, in Israel was not very important before 1993 after an infusion of uh, many uh, Russian, engin uh, Russian trained engineers. You had uh, the uh, high-tech miracle in Israel. So uh, there is both uh, an effect of complementarity and Migrants simply invent new opportunities when they uh, when they they, they reach, uh, and but the bottom line is that there is no strong evidence of competition. There is uh, some little clar um, qualification actually because the current wave of migrants from Syria to Turkey, uh, about 2.5 million people out of a population of about 78 million people. It seems that in the rural areas have some effect competing for women in the work in the, in the rural sector. Uh, this is understandable because uh, the numbers are so huge and basically the, the qualifications are not very high, so there is some possibility. But if previous studies are right, you would sh show over time some complementarity more than competition. Another important mechanism that I didn't mention is that there is evidence also of an upgrade. As uh, uh, migrants come, natives tend to upgrade and study more, uh, having more education. And so this also could be a mechanism through which uh, uh, it's easier to uh, integrate uh, migrants. So, so much for the labor market. Just to summarize, there is a big effect and uh, a gap for migrants, for natives, and uh, sorry, for uh, um, migrants, yes. So they earn less, and this is constant across many studies. But on natives, you have uh, very little effect. What about the fiscal cost? Here, uh, uh, the bottom line, uh, there is a study done by OCD uh, on previous migrations. What we did is another, uh, just to gather some numbers from our member countries. We ask and we, um, and we check what, what they plan, what they budget for the refugees. These are the numbers, the share of GDP. The bottom line of this picture is that uh, quite not much so far. Uh, on average is 0.2% of GDP, and the country which by far spends more on refugee is Sweden with 1%. But even countries like Germany with a large quota of refugee, for the moment, spend about one-third of a point of GDP, 0.35%, which is relatively modest. With the, uh, this table is, the numbers of this table are very complicated because different countries put different, very different things on this table. I know Hungary put uh, uh, the, the, the cost of building the wall, uh, <laughs> other countries, so uh, while Sweden put uh, the money for integrating uh, or to integrate uh, migrants. So this, these numbers have to be taken uh, for a lot of, uh, with a lot of grain of salt. But the bottom line, which is clear, is that the numbers are not huge. So the idea that uh, migrants cause a big uh, fiscal problem is not there, is, no, is not evident from the number. This, this table also shows that uh, the importance of building a common methodology to account for migrants, for fiscal expenditure on migrants. Because right now we cannot really compare these numbers. As I said, Hungary put something that Sweden 
Sweden put something else. So it's, uh, it's very, uh, this, in the future, I think uh, uh, some work should be done to have a common number on this. The other issue on, uh, is that this is just a picture. But to have a proper idea, we should, we should have a movie. Because as we know, as we know from, uh, from physical studies, at the beginning of uh, life, people get more because they are education. They enjoy education. Later on, they work and they contribute fiscally and so on. So given that the migrant population is relatively young, uh, this doesn't account from the fact that uh, now Europe is spending more on them, but in the future, if integrated, uh, they will give back. These intertemporal studies are very important, but uh, are not here yet. We, and uh, as I said, the OECD has done something, and uh, I think that it's also that is an area where we should uh, do more. I do, yes, very quickly. Uh, we have done some estimation of what happens with the re, uh, to GDP growth uh, on um, uh, uses some assumption more or less integration on uh, as you can see well these are very uh, let's say uh, hypotheses are not written in stone and so are very uh, we have it's a rule of thumb but uh, there is a positive effect of on GDP growth for all countries in the short run is is purely due to the demand effect spending more you have more aggregate demand so GDP goes up but in the longer term you have a supply effect because as these people are integrated into the labor market they contribute to growth in the future the EU Germany Germany. So Germany is that, uh, and we have two scenarios. I don't go into detail for the sake of time, but we have a, a scenario with more integration, less integration, and uh, um, and we look at the unemployment, uh, fiscal, and uh, refugees, and uh, output. But uh, let me go quickly to the last topic: is on migration and uh, population growth. Um, this graph shows uh, the population change in the EU 28. Uh, it shows the natural change, the blue line. So it tells that, for instance, in 1960, uh, Europe increased by about 3.5 million per year. And you see the natural change, what is purely due to the native population, declines over time. Starting in the mid-90s, uh, the natural increase in population is zero overall. It's basically zero. It's very minimal. It's less than half a million. But uh, the green light shows the contribution due to migration. And as you can see, starting in the mid-80s, the contribution is positive, and now is the main part of the growth of population in Europe is due to immigration. This speaks to the fact that uh, Long-term effects are important for all aging dynamics. We have done some simulation and uh, uh, using the, again, the numbers here should be taken really carefully. And uh, these are our results, but uh, 
uh, refugees are younger on average than the average citizens, and uh, pension expenditure will be lower by about one quarter and, uh, of GDP in 2030. Here we are very conservative on the amount, very, very conservative. Uh, simply because we don't want to, to give the idea that is, uh, you can solve the pension system just by inflow of refugees. The central message here is that for systems that need some reform, you have to do the reforms anyway. Refugees can help in the transition phase, but they cannot uh, address the big problem. There was this naive view that you just have a lot of refugees and everything will be solved. It's not there. <laughs> Uh, finally, summary. Um, so, just to summarize, uh, and in the reports we do elaborate much more. Uh, the flow of uh, displaced people are large by historical standard and may persist because a lot of people were, are displaced in Syria and around. The international experience is that the impact on native workers is very limited. Uh, and uh, confined to some groups. At the same time, it shows that refugees have, uh, uh, refugees and immigrants in general, uh, usually have a big wage gap. In the report, we do elaborate some set of policies that can help this, uh, to close this gap. Uh, I, um, many countries have experience, I have some experience with uh, active labor market policies. These were key and I have shown to have worked very well in the past for some countries. And so I think part of the message of the, of the, of the report is that extrapolating from the experience in Sweden, Germany, you can really uh, integrate much better these people. Um, faster labor market integration lowers cost and raises gains. So this should be seen as an investment. This active labor market cost I have some fiscal costs, but in the medium term, they really have high return. And uh, in the report, we elaborate on this. And uh, at the end, yes, fiscal costs are quite limited, so are not. Uh, and uh, there is a discussion about how these fiscal costs can be accommodated within the uh, growth and stability pact, which is a concern for Europe. Um, and we think that there is no need to change this, and uh, there is sufficient room within the framework. So that's uh, all. Hey, hello sure. from me too. Good morning. I'm Katerina Soko. I'm the Washington correspondent for Catherine Greek Daily and Sky TV. And uh, if I may please uh, uh, call to um, the podium, uh, Antonio, to begin with. Uh, thank you. And uh, Moreno Bertoldi. He is the principal advisor to the EU delegation in the United States, a, a career in the European Commission. He came from Brussels, where he served as head of the Directorate General for Economic and Financial Affairs. This is the European Treasury, if I may call it like that, yeah, <laughs> or the Ministry of the Economy. And uh, he has also been a councillor for the European Commission delegation in Japan and was head of the unit responsible for the G20 countries and groups, as well as the IMF at the European Commission's directorate again, the, tre the Treasury Ministry. And may I please welcome Laura Lane as well. She's the president of Global Public Affairs at United Parcel Service. Previously, she was managing director, head of international, international government affairs for Citigroup, vice president for global policy, public policy at Time Warner. 
while in the 90s, Laura served in the US Foreign Service, including postings to Colombia and Rwanda. She has an inspiring story from Rwanda that maybe you could share later with us. But she was Watts officer under Secretary of State Warren Christopher and served at the Trade Policy and Programs Office in the Bureau of Economic and B Business Affairs at the State Department uh, as a representative on the US Basic Telecommunications Negotiating Team and negotiator in the World Trade Organization Financial Services Negotiation, which was the first one that was ever uh, brokered, made. So uh, inspiring people to talk about this issue with us. And if I may start with Antonio and his presentation uh, and ask, uh, is there, uh, these are, I understand that these, some of your examples that you use in order to project what will happen in the future are, are, are previous uh, cases of migration. Now we actually have a different surge of mostly refugees who are fleeing war and conflict. And I was wondering how that may affect the results, the economic impact in the future. Would these people go back after some time and would that affect the, uh, the economics of uh, the problem? Yeah. Previous studies have shown that actually uh, the integration of refugees is more difficult. Uh, first, because uh, the, uh, it's natural, uh, economic migrants have a, some, a, a selection. Uh, they go because there is work, they want to work there, but migrants go leave the country because of situ uh, the situation of the home country is difficult. Uh, said that uh, uh, the gap, well, the gap so is bigger. We have shown and we have the graph in our studies on this. But uh, you observe the same time profile. Over time, there is uh, an absorption. Uh, uh, there is a, a, a reduce. The, this gap reduces over time. Mm -hmm. um, the other issue is that if they are allowed to work or not. Some countries, including Turkey, didn't allow uh, refugees to work until very recently. So you have 2.5 million people who legally couldn't work. And this is terrible. This is terrible because studies over studies have shown that uh, if you leave people, oblige people to stay out of work for these three, four years, they simply uh, lose their ability, their, not only their hope. And the, so uh, one big message is shorten the period um, where when they cannot work. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, uh, uh, it's, a, it's bad for refugees, it's bad for the host countries. Mm -hmm. So I guess that brings me to Moreno and the European Union policy on how to uh, accept and how many refugees to accept and how to integrate them. Uh, we, we've seen in the press, and I think uh, the current affairs is full of stories about how these people are being uh, received in the, in the countries of first entry, uh, the challenges there the of uh, um, documenting them, of hosting them. Um, now the borders are closed, so they cannot really move from Greece to other countries. So there is a challenge of how to um, receive them to begin with, let alone integrate them. So I was wondering what uh, your take would be on what the European Union is doing right now to address this challenge. Well, I mean, measures have been taken recently uh, in the mid of March, and uh, we are now putting them in place. So the, the first thing is uh, to uh, break uh, the networks, illegal networks, uh, of uh, uh, people, uh, smugglers, uh, that have been operated, uh, uh, that have been operating, and that have managed 
uh, a lot of these flows, uh, and in the meantime, to continue to have to let the refugees come in, but to have them properly registered and distributed uh, inside uh, uh, the European Union. And in that, we have uh, uh, taken measures and there have been pledges. So, I mean, for instance, uh, we are strengthening the presence of uh, 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 European uh, uh, officials uh, in charge of the external borders uh, uh, that work together with the Greek and the Italian authorities uh, uh, to have these people uh, 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 registered. So the, 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 there have been pledges. I mean, the, we, we have asked for, uh, uh, in the specific case, uh, uh, to have uh, uh, 50 uh, readmission experts uh, uh, added to the people who are already working and already 44 have been allocated. Uh, the escort officers that have to take care of the people uh, who arrive and help them uh, to, uh, to provide the first help and, uh, uh, and uh, bring them in, in the various hotspots where they will be registered. Uh, uh, there have been uh, um, uh, the, the, the request is that we, we need 1,500, 700 have already been received and the others uh, will come soon. We need judges in order to be able to assess uh, each case individually because, I mean, now there will be people who will be sent back uh, to Turkey if they don't have the requisite to be refugees, but uh, will not be done in a wholesale manner, will be done one by one. All people will be interviewed. Some, uh, uh, many will be accepted. Some uh, will be asked to, uh, uh, to go back. Some may even go back, but uh, uh, they can appeal and, and their appeal will be considered and therefore even if Turkey and the appeal disagreed, uh, uh, they will be readmitted. So we are putting that, I mean, we needed uh, 30 judges. Uh, we have uh, already received 33, so we are uh, even above uh, what uh, we had asked for. So we are building the uh, infrastructure to allow these people to come, to be registered and to be uh, 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 allocated uh, in an orderly way in the, uh, in the European Union. The orderly way is very important for two reasons. One is because, as we have seen uh, at the end, uh, I mean, as we have seen last year, the massive inflow uh, in certain time, I mean, it's not that, I mean, the, the number of inflow is not manageable in an area that has more than 500 million people, but uh, if all people come through one or two spots, Lampedusa, Lesbos, uh, and after they go through the same route and so on, the, the, I mean, that creates uh, a, a sense of difficult and the idea that the authorities are not able to manage, and, uh, and, and after you have people uh, uh, sleeping outside, uh, living in the street and so on, and that is amplified also by the media and creates uh, a sort of political backlash. Why, if you have orderly, then it can be managed much more easily, and, and, and that is what uh, we are doing. That is also what is the basis uh, of the agreement uh, with Turkey. And Laura just came back from uh, a, an organized, I understand, and uh, uh, refugee camp in mm -hmm. Germany where uh, you were telling us earlier how stunned you were with the skill and the talent of the people you saw there, mostly Syrian refugees. What, what is the business uh, perspective on the refugee search? And I understand that your company, UPS, is doing a lot uh, mm -hmm. in trying to uh, help uh, uh, 
from the business perspective, from uh, the private perspective, work with the public and uh, with the refugees in order to integrate them. Yeah, thank you for that question. I, I was going to say, I mean, from the UPS perspective, um, this isn't a European problem. This is a problem that all of us should be working in partnership to address. The solution isn't only going to come from governments. It's going to come from a three-part solution that is the partnership between governments, businesses, and civil society trying to find ways to address the challenges and make those challenges opportunities. So specific to that, UPS has taken on uh, the issue of the refugee crisis in a very personal way. We operate in 220 countries and territories. We have 435,000 employees. And you know what? We operate in a lot of places. And anytime there's natural disaster or there's a crisis, we take it personal because it becomes local for us. Anything that threatens the security or the stability of the communities we serve, we should be part of the solution to reestablish that stability because that's good for business, right? Um, um, from that perspective, UPS has said, you know what, we've got a lot of logistics capabilities. We have a lot of talented UPSers who not only know how to run logistic networks, but they're also great lawyers. They're, they're great builders. They're great engineers. And so we've asked them across our company to come together to help address the refugee crisis. So what has that meant? We have uh, used our network to coordinate with the NGOs to bring all of the donations that have come together and get them to the places that need them. You, you get a lot of donations from a lot of places, but you need to get them to where they're going to make a difference. UPS is, uses the power of our logistics network to get those donations to where they're needed. We use our people to volunteer day in and day out to help in any ways that they can. We have a commitment in our company to do 20 million hours of volunteer service by 2020. We don't have to ask our people. They automatically go out and do it. They're working in these centers on the weekends, um, helping to teach German in the case of the Berlin Center, because if these people are going to be integrated into the, uh, into the country, they have to speak the local language so that they can communicate. We're working with um, these centers to help them organize their logistics capabilities to develop better warehousing capabilities so that you know, hey, we're running low on socks. Um, let's figure out how we can organize an effort to get more socks into that center. Real story, um, I went to the Berlin Center, and you know what? Everybody donates the jackets and the pants and everything that you naturally think of. Nobody thinks of socks. And you know what I told my team? I told my team, think about what it's like for those families that are walking, that are cold, their feet are wet. What's the nicest thing you can do? Give them a warm pair of socks. We delivered on my last trip. I brought them in my suitcases. 487 pairs of socks that we collected in one week. And you know what? You thought I was bringing gold to some of these people because just to get a clean pair of socks made all the difference. I brought lollipops too. And you know what? The kids uh, the kids loved the lollipops, but so did the, the moms and dads that were there to say, wow, thank you for caring. Um, and that's, I guess, the fundamental point. There's a lot of opportunities for business to use our big project management skills, our know-how, our very talented people who, if you ask them to devote a little bit of themselves to help make the situation better for people in the communities where they're living and working, uh, you can make a world of difference. Mm -hmm. And, and on the second part about um, the very good presentation given about the economic opportunities, 
UPS is a company where our CEO started as a preloader and a driver. He was trained by our company to do the basics of our operations, the very important parts of our operations. He's now the CEO 41 years later. You know what I know? I know UPS has the ability to train people at the very entry level. We can teach them to be preloaders. They taught me how to be a UPS driver, um, and I drove for two months, so clearly we have the training capabilities. A lot of these refugees give them an opportunity to support themselves and their families, and we've done them a world of good. And in the center that I was at, there's a lot that the families that were there, they want an opportunity to rebuild their lives, but they need help getting those work permits. And it's been taking six to nine months just to get through the bureaucratic red tape. UPS would be ready to hire many of those folks in our preload and our sort, um, in our cologne operations right now if we could get the proper paperwork um, to be able to give them an opportunity to be part of our organization. But it's not just UPS. There's lots of other companies that can be doing this. So we need a three-part partnership. Government, working with business, working with civil society, and together, this doesn't have to be a problem. It can be a great economic opportunity, and it's the right thing to do. It's a human intervention it first is. and foremost, and yes. then we start from there. The, you mentioned, uh, and uh, I, I would like to the public-private uh, partnership, and I would like to link it a bit to the fiscal cost of the refugee surge, because I understand that while the fiscal costs that governments uh, appear in their budget are still small, uh, the reallocation of resources that is needed on an international level, and even on a regional level, from uh, private individuals, from businesses, to help the refugees are much larger, I would imagine, than the numbers that we just saw on uh, how much uh, uh, the budgets are catering to uh, for the refugee crisis. So I was wondering, Antonio, if you have uh, um, any specific uh, way to calculate that and how you would address the reallocation of resources that is needed in order to address this crisis, which is quite unique, actually, yeah. in size. We do not have uh, uh, explicit estimation of the private uh, uh, contribution. Uh, Turkey has tried to do this, uh, and the number they came up is $7.6 billion, including a lot of things. But uh, we, there is no way to verify this. Uh, mm -hmm. This includes a lot of NGO, private donations, uh, and uh, we, uh, it's very difficult to verify. There is no way to but let me stress also that there are many actions that the governments can take which have no fiscal cost but of great importance for the uh, integration of refugees, including a key path for migrants is self-employment. In many European countries, it's very difficult mm -hmm. to become self-employed because of regulations and other uh, norms. Even uh, here, for instance, just a casual observation, if you drive a cab, uh, Good probability it is not a you is an immigrant. In Europe, it's very difficult to find uh, in many countries uh, uh, immigrants as a cab driver. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, there are many uh, or recognition of titles. Uh, it's very important. For instance, we know that story of nurses, doctors that cannot work legally because of recognition of title. Mm -hmm. That is fiscally doesn't have a big implication, but has a big impact for the integration. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's very important also to stress some actions that can beyond fiscal. Mm -hmm. 
Moreno, can the European Union do anything in that regard in order to uh, push forward with a better integration of refugees in all countries, um, or like a directive or something that would uh, facilitate their integration? Uh, for example, like uh, ask all its member states to uh, provide uh, work permits to their uh, to the refugees while they're even while they're waiting for asylum, maybe. Well, we have what we can do is uh, uh, moral suasion and uh, discussing because I mean these are competencies that mostly are uh, uh, with the member states and uh, uh, and we have to take into account that and we also have to be very careful in order to avoid uh, uh, political backlashes in, in, in that respect. I mean, for instance, I mean, President Juncker has been very clear, he said that he's in favour that uh, while the uh, refugee status is processed, people should be allowed to enter the labor market and therefore not to lose the skills and the abilities that um, but the things varies among member states sometimes some take very few weeks one month some they have three months some uh, uh, they have six months and uh, uh, it's really up to them and you cannot impose something mm -hmm. uh, 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 from the uh, uh, from the outside. I think that, that there is, however, the growing uh, uh, um, awareness that, I mean, the, in order to have a successful integration of uh, uh, refugees, you need to have them entering uh, more rapidly in, in the labor market. And that has to be done at all the uh, uh, level of the uh, uh, um, so so in, in terms of what the European Union is doing is the reallocating resources, uh, uh, financial resources to refugees. I mean, the President Juncker has uh, asked uh, and obtained the doubling of resources to help Bureaucratically, was that easy to do? I mean, uh, did you have a lot of backlash when we were trying to reallocate resources? Or? Uh, no, because I think that there was the... the uh, uh, the awareness that we were facing a major challenge for the European Union and that, I mean, the, uh, uh, has not been. But, I mean, clearly there are, since you are you're allocating, you are taking money away from other projects uh, that you have. So, I mean, the, the, uh, but that was not the, 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 the major issue. Um, and I think that the people have realized and, and I mean, the, the, that uh, you have to intervene. And I think that uh, what you see is that uh, more and more the member states and also the local authorities are doing uh, things in order to allow and facilitate the uh, uh, um, uh, integration of refugees uh, uh, in the respective country, knowing that uh, for some countries uh, uh, the challenge is higher. I mean, the, uh, even countries that, for instance, have an aging population uh, maybe at this moment are facing also high unemployment rates. And therefore, even if uh, what uh, Antonio said, that I mean, the, uh, uh, in reality the refugees don't take uh, uh, work away from uh, the uh, uh, native population, the perception sometimes is different. And so we have to work on, on this perception, and there is really there uh, for the political uh, leaders to uh, make uh, a big, uh, uh, spend a lot of political capital because we are seeing that uh, uh, there has been, however, 
a reaction to the uh, uh, inflow uh, of, uh, of refugees and uh, often has not been mm -hmm. uh, uh, very positive. And therefore, you need to explain, you need to uh, uh, explain that the fiscal costs are not so high mm -hmm. because, I mean, people see, I mean, they, they say, I mean, we have, uh, uh, in the case of Italy, 300,000 people uh, uh, entering last year uh, uh, through the borders. I mean, I mean, is this, I mean, people think that the, the cost is very high. Instead, I mean, as uh, Antonio saw, uh, show, was 0.25% of GDP. So, I mean, the, the, all these things have to be explained and to be expl explained carefully. And uh, on that, you have to, to make a big effort. I think as the European Union, this has been on the top of our agenda and of our discussions uh, since a couple of months, and we are making the effort, but everybody has to do the same. Mm -hmm. And Laura, if you may tap uh, into your experience at the State Department as a U.S. diplomat, and uh, uh, how do you see, obviously, the U.S. government is a major, the biggest donor at the U.N. and uh, uh, on the refugee issue, but uh, um, how do you, uh, how would you suggest, how would you recommend to uh, uh, the U.S. government to uh, tackle this crisis. A lot of people have focused on uh, the fact that 10,000, uh, like, and, and a contested number for that, is uh, too uh, too low of a contribution for the U.S. government to be accepting only 10,000 uh, Syrian refugees, given uh, the crisis fa faced and the numbers that we saw, the millions of people uh, that are displaced. Uh, how would you address it? And if uh, um, if it is, I don't know if this is a good opportunity to go back into your R Rwandan experience as well. Mm -hmm. to, yeah. uh, the Rwandan experience sadly wasn't um, an example of uh, the U.S. government or the international community rising uh, to the cause and addressing what um, was a devastating uh, time in world history. But I, I can't speak for the U.S. government because I'm not in the U.S. government, but I would say that um, the Obama administration has had some pretty amazing initiatives where they've asked companies to come together to be leaders uh, among the business community in partnership with government. I think about our um, Hiring Vets initiative where President Obama asked a handful of companies to come together and say, what we, can we do to provide employment for our vets? They've asked a handful of companies to come together and say, let's be leaders in the industry in support of our climate change initiatives. In both cases, UPS was there. What can the U.S. do? The U.S. government, I think, could um, have that convening power of bringing NGOs and businesses together to um, find ways to fill that gap um, of need and opportunity um, and bring those ideas in that kind of roundtable setting. I think about every uh, natural disaster that occurs, and UPS is at the center of a lot of those roundtables where we get organizations from Catholic Relief Services to care to the Red Cross all around a table and everyone says, okay, here's what I've got. I've got 10,000 blankets. I've got 15,000 first aid kits. How do we get them to X location to help? And it's a constant dialogue of needs and opportunities for companies to help meet those needs. That kind of um, round table or um, convening of capabilities and skills, I think would be very valuable to addressing those needs. In terms of um, uh, taking on uh, additional people into the country, 
The US government has a, a good process that, that should continue to be used for people applying for asylum to be um, adjudicated by US law and given the opportunity to come to the United States. Um, we don't have a, a system of quotas, to my knowledge, with respect to asylum. Um, I, I'd hope that that process has continued to be used. Um, that said, uh, many of the people that I met, for example, in the Berlin Center, um, they, um, they just want opportunity. Uh, and it's not necessarily where, but it's, um, it's the opportunity. So anything that the US government can do to facilitate that opportunity, um, you know, anything we can do to drive economic growth, um, particularly in Europe, I think would help then uh, ease that burden. Because then folks wouldn't see it as a cost. As, as the economy is growing, there's more opportunities for others to be brought in. In that regard, UPS is putting its money where its mouth is. We're investing $2 billion in Europe. We believe in, um, in what Europe can uh, become with the infusion of more investment. And to that point that you made, it was an excellent point. Um, Europe needs to find ways to become even more pro-business. From that respect, um, UPS is a big believer in the uh, internal market. We need to make sure that borders don't get put back up between countries. Because when those borders uh, get put back up, it ruins the economic opportunities, mm -hmm. I think, that come from that integration. Internal market as yeah. Well. So I think uh, there's a lot of ways that um, the US government can help keep the asylum process going. Don't shut that down. It's in US law. Give people an opportunity to come here to the United States. Two, convene those that have the ability to help make a difference. Don't assume that governments are the only ones that can solve this problem. Have that convening power and regular dialogue. And third, promote economic growth with the right policies. UPS is going to invest. Um, we're going to be part of the solution. Let's find other ways to create more growth in Europe, because then there's a lot more opportunity to go around. Perfect. Well, I have more questions, but uh, this is the time to take a few questions of the audience. And if I may start, uh, st yeah. start with the gentleman here. Thank you very much. Thomas Lambert. I'm DCM at the Belgian And um, I'm very inspired by the data that I saw here. So one. They're not stealing jobs. Two, they're very complementary. And three, also, I'm very happy to note that uh, there's a true commitment uh, of the private sector. And UPS is a big in investor also in Belgium, <coughs> both for national and European operations, yeah. I imagine. Our headquarters is in Belgium. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, but my question is a more uh, straightforward one. We hear many uh, stories that contradict themselves on the economic profiles of some say they can barely read or write. Others say, no, we find engineers and doctors, uh, you name it, lawyers. But what, and maybe that's a, a specific question for you, what is the, the economic profile of these people? Do you, do you see a pattern emerge? Are these people mostly higher skilled, lower skilled? Do you detect the yeah. I actually think it's a mix. And from that perspective, those that have incredible skills, for example, I went, I met one gentleman who was um, a uh, uh, structural engineer um, fleeing Syria with his family. And I was thinking, wow, this guy's got skills that could easily be employed in terms of you know, building another one of our facilities that we're building across Europe. Um, then I also met um, you know, the. Um, a family that uh, you know they weren't ex they they were com 
they were coming from a background where I didn't get the sense that they'd had a college education or anything like that, but they were earnest in their uh, view that they didn't want to have their kids grow up in war-torn Syria and they literally strapped the kids on their back and, and, and went all the way to make it to Germany. And from that perspective, um, I'm really proud to work at UPS because we have opportunities for people of all ranges of skills and capabilities. And, um, and, and I'm, I'm not just saying it uh, in terms, I can give specific examples. We have great partnerships in the state of Kentucky and the state of Chicago, in the, in the state of Illinois, particularly in the Chicagoland area, where there was challenges for the governors in terms of finding employment for um, young people coming out of uh, very poor economic environments, no chance that they'd ever finish high school, much less go to college. And UPS set up programs so that they could work in our operations by night and get their GED or their college degree by day. I think there's a lot of uh, very innovative programs. So even those that can't read or write, you know, we have uh, um, uh, operations that um, don't require reading or writing. They require learning certain skills, and you can train them to do certain activities. Um, similarly, I think about the amazing programs that Germany has in terms of apprenticeships and vocational training. Um, I'm a true believer in uh, if you've got the will within a person, you can teach them almost anything. Mm -hmm. It just takes that time and energy. Teaching them to read and write, that's, a no, a, you know, that's, a, that's something that it just takes some volunteer hours, and UPSers are committed to doing that. I'll teach you to read and write, and then you can go um, try to make something more um, of yourself with that basic skill. I think, uh, Antonio, we were discussing about this earlier, and we said that there's still more work to be done uh, to actually um, top this, uh, uh, this latest wave of uh, refugees and what the socioeconomic uh, yeah, I think there are two is. different aspects. One is the level of education, uh, the degree they have. And the second is the transferability, and this is key. And we have very good example in the past. Uh, there are many studies on the Russian engineers moving to Israel in 92, 91, 92, 93. At the beginning, they were janitors. They were very, very simple jobs. In few years, as their skills were recognized, as they benefited from integration program, they, they integrated very, very well. So the lessons we learn from past experiences is that uh, not only the absolute level of education is important, it's important also more uh, to ensure transferability, which has a legal aspect, but has also an um, educational aspect. Uh, just to, and, uh, and Sweden this has done quite a bit. They have a program tailored, and every uh, refugee or immigrant is different, and they try to understand what are the skills how, and how, crucially, they are transferable. And I think that uh, there is a lot to be learned from Israel and uh, Sweden on this. The gentleman, please. Good morning. Uh, thank you for taking my question. So, my name is Walter Jurassic. I, uh, once in my life, in young age, I was the refugee. I don't know if anybody in this room is in, as a refugee. It's a rough life. I escaped the communist country, Poland and traveled through Vienna, finally to Italy. I did not expect anything from anybody, from no government, help, nothing. I risk. 
that thanks to the Italian government later on, they put me to the Latin, which is Mussolini camp. Another of life. There's a problem with this European Union right now to dealing with refugees. Number one, there is a huge cultural clash. We cannot escape. If we don't learn how to deal with that, we never can solve the problem. When I came to US, I was vetted in US Embassy. They asked me even question, have you belonged to the communist country? This is a very good question. If you were a communist country, you couldn't go back to come to US. When I come to US, they thought that I am communist already. They put me on the hotel, seven days, goodbye, you're on. I didn't come to the government, I didn't go and hang out. The problem with refugees, today refugees, and I see that across because I travel all over the world since I come to this country from nothing. I made myself very well, but nobody teach me English. I learn in streets, even in the homeless, in the subway. But the problem with this, when the government put hands out and they put all the time, those people never have any incentives. Those people will not have even courage to do their own. And European Union have a problem with that. So I guess the question would The question be is what we going to do to teach the new refugees, if you come to the country, assimilate yourself, mm -hmm. learn their language, and accept the culture. Do not change another cultures, because mm -hmm. that is a clash, and which will uh, be very difficult to solve. So is it this is the question. When are you going to think about that, Moreno, not only economic? would you like to take this? Well, I mean, the, as Antonio was saying, we, I mean, the, this uh, uh, inflow is different uh, for various reasons. One is the size that, as we have seen, is, has been uh, even bigger uh, than it was uh, after uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, the second thing that uh, is different is that uh, the people are, that who are coming uh, have uh, a, a limited knowledge of, uh, of Europe and they come from a different continent and with, uh, with different customs, religions and so on. So there is a communitarian issue uh, that exists. And, and the third one uh, uh, is that there is also the issue of security because, I mean, uh, in the past, I mean, they, they, uh, although the two things should not be assimilated, but, I mean, there is a fear in particular in the native population that uh, among the refugees uh, there could be potential terrorists. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and therefore, all the three things are creating a situation that makes, in the short term, uh, the problem of uh, uh, integration more difficult and uh, would be a mistake not uh, uh, to recognize it. So what we are doing, I think that, I mean, the, uh, the, the, there is an effort uh, that is ongoing. Uh, um, one is to explain to the people who are coming, and there's been, I've seen that the German government, uh, the Austrian government, the Italian government, uh, and local authorities, that is even more important, are trying to make an effort to explain uh, 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 not only in German, Italian, and so on, but also in the language of the people who are coming, Syrian and Arabic, uh, I mean, what are the custom and uh, what are the way, the proper way to behave in the countries that. Uh, uh, you are introduced. The other thing is uh, 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 to have uh, uh, the uh, um, 
I mean, the, the possibility of speaking and integrating with people, and I think that on here UPS has a very good experience uh, uh, in the thing, so that, uh, I mean, we have not to take as given that the people will come and we will not change uh, their, uh, 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 their behavior, as well as we have not to take as given that the, the native people will not adjust their view on, on these people that initially can be perceived as, uh, uh, as a threat. I mean, the, the way in which you are able to integrate, you are to have these people integrated in schools uh, to have education and to, to learn the language, it requires time, it's difficult, it's politically costly, and in the short term you have backlashes, but I think this is the only way because, I mean, what is the alternative? The alternative is to say no to refugees and the EU will lose its soul. I mean, we have been, I mean, we started, in fact, after World War II, I mean, the, am the amount of refugees was huge at the time. In a situation, in the current situation, was much more difficult. So we are based on that. I mean, the, uh, um, there have been studies on that the, 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 and, uh, and the reports on that. So, I mean, the, we cannot renounce on that. And the, the, the alternative, what it is, is that uh, we fail and we put, the refugees aside, we don't integrate them, which means that you have more social expenditure, social work expenditure, the positive impact that we are seeing in the long term uh, on pensions would be lost because these people would not contribute, and you would have, uh, last but not least, the fact that you would be put a, a huge strain on the, uh, 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 let's say, free movement of people in Europe, and therefore you would have the risk of Schengen collapsing. Yes. And the cost of non-Schengens are also very high. So, I mean, in the end, we don't have uh, really a different uh, option that integrate them su successfully. And on that, as I said, we have to spend political capital. We have to explain. I think that, that on their side, there is also willingness escaping from a war zone to integrate. And on our side, we have to put the necessary resources, uh, but not only resources, but work uh, at all levels, on the private and private, public and private, uh, to have them integrate in a successful way. Can, can I share an example, or should we do, are we going to do yeah. another question? Uh, we do have another question, and uh, we will. yeah, okay, please. Lord, you, you know, um, you raise such a fundamental point about that clash of culture. Um, and uh, I, when I was in my government uh, career at the U.S. Trade Representative's office, I actually was the representative that um, managed a lot of our interactions with the Middle East and actually started the negotiations with the Royal Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, a country where there is tremendous um, you know, respect for women uh, specifically. I want to give you an, a specific example from the Berlin Center visit. Um, and it was astounding to me how uh, the simple act of providing compassion to these refugees is changing some of their cultural views. Uh, when uh, many of the young boys, uh, because a lot of the 14 to 18 year olds are being sent by their families ahead um, to flee from being um, recruited to you know, be a part of ISIS or any of the, um, the armed groups there, um, the, the boys initially would spit on the uh, women volunteers. Um, they would be incredibly disrespectful to all of the women in the center because culturally they hadn't been raised to see women as equals with men. 
the male volunteers uh, made sure that they continued to model uh, the right behavior in terms of seeing the women as their partners and their equals in their centers. Most of the volunteers t told me it took about three months before all of a sudden those young boys started treating those women with a lot more respect. And um, it was astounding to me, for example, when I visited the center, I did not expect the men to look me in the face. I didn't expect them to shake my hand. But you know what? They did because they recognized that this is a culture that values men and women equally and sees that we both have contributions to make. And they started seeing that difference. I I think the best thing we can do is model our cultural values of uh, non-discrimination and respect. Second point you made was fundamental. That language equation is critical. If we don't create those bridges, not walls, uh, for communicating with each other, to understand each other better, um, and I think it comes teaching them German if they're living in Germany, teaching them Italian if they're living in Italy, teaching them English if they're in the United States of America. My grandma came over on the boat through Ellis Island, and she made sure she learned English. She was proud of her Italian heritage, but she assimilated here. We need to have those kinds of uh, programs that facilitate that integration and hopefully shape the values on which we want a global community based. Um, and I'm not saying anything disparaging about certain Middle Eastern cultures and uh, how they treat women, but for me, I'd love to see a lot more of that Jordan perspective about how women and men are equal, and that can come through that demonstration effect, which I saw at the centers. And last is give them economic opportunity. You're absolutely right, because many of the people I met, they don't want a handout. They have their dignity and their pride, um, but we have to help them be able to contribute. We do need to be vigilant, though, because there are bad guys in all of these camps that take advantage of these situations. They prey on people's hopes and fears, not only within the camps, but in the communities around them. We have to work together to strengthen our security apparatus so that we can track the bad guys but help the good guys. Mm -hmm. So we really have three Italians in the panel today. Yeah, good <laughs> Italian. Yeah, that's and right. Let's go to another. That's the passion <laughs> in the hands, right? Tom Gizzi is the correspondent of uh, journalist with uh, Newsmax yes. and uh, White House correspondent. Yeah. Thank you. I guess I don't have to introduce myself. <laughs> Thanks very much. Uh, it has just been announced that the Pope will make an official visit to Greece April 15th. And at that point, it is almost a foregone conclusion he will address the refugee situation, possibly even meet with refugees while he's there, given his past pattern and his pronouncements on this in the United States. What good can come on the refugee situation from the Pope's visit, and can the Vatican play a greater role in facilitating some of the noble goals that uh, all three of the panelists have spelled out? Who do you address the question to? All three of all the three. panelists, well, yeah. yeah. Whoever wants to. I was going to say, I am a good Catholic, and I am so proud of what prou uh, Pope Francis is doing. And you know what good can come from it is his fundamental message about compassion, um, because it's compassion that will defeat a lot of the evil that's driving a lot of these terrorist organizations. And he is someone who has said, my fellow Muslim is not my enemy. Um, Christians and Muslims should be able to find a way to live together in this world. We're all under one God on a certain level, um, just different ways and 
practicing our faith. And I know Pope Francis is a, um, a, a vocal advocate for that compassion of asking each of us what more we can do. Um, and, uh, and I think it's going to be a powerful message. Um, and hopefully he can be that voice that also said, let's, let's look to what more we can do. Because at the end of the day, we're all one humanity. Just to say that I fully agree, I think that I mean the um, uh, Catholic organizations are playing a very significant role in uh, helping the refugees. Uh, they are doing in a way, uh, as Pope Francis put it, not in order to do proselytism, but rather to help sincerely the people and uh, uh, facilitate their integration. So they uh, are part of that NGO civil society together with uh, uh, um, private companies and uh, uh, the states and the, and the European Union are working hard to make sure that the uh, first uh, uh, part of the integration take place and after that we'll have also an important role uh, to, to play uh, and so on and uh, it will help also to avoid this perception that we are in a sort of clash of civilization and so on but rather to find a, a way of uh, uh, working together to solve a, a, a big challenge that exists for, for Europe and to have these people uh, 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 realizing that uh, we can uh, work and cooperate uh, uh, in peace in, inside the European Union. Yeah. And if I may say as well, from uh, my experience in Greece, the Greek Orthodox Church has also been instrumental mm -hmm. in uh, addressing some of the pre first uh, challenges of the refugees, but also much more organized. There is a Greek American, uh, uh, yes, a, a, a Greek Orthodox. Uh, Church of uh, America mm -hmm. that is doing great work in mm -hmm. Syria, in situ, in, in, uh, in helping people on the ground there. So uh, I guess uh, in your partnership, you know, the civil society certainly includes uh, some of the religious groups that Definitely. can help and uh, alleviate the, the challenges. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much. We don't want to take more of your time. But, uh, and uh, thanks to the yeah. panelists. Uh, thank you, Antonio, for the presentation. And, uh,